the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hello, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. We are uh, continuing. I can't believe it. We're, it's been a, a full year <laughs> of re- us recording remotely. Uh, I really can't believe we've been doing it this long, but I'm thankful that we still are. I sure miss you. I sure miss recording in person. It's so much better. I think you'd probably agree with that statement. I barely remember what you look like. But yeah, it's been a it's been a long haul. I, I'm I'm really looking forward to a time where we can uh, record in person again. It seems like I I say that about every four or five months, thinking that we're right <laughs> right around the corner from that, and it just doesn't seem to freaking happen. Yeah, I mean, it's good to stay hopeful. Yes, you know, if there's yes. one thing we can do is stay hopeful. God. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you just have to, to, to live by the wisdom of, of Jack Burton. And, uh, this, this movie gave me a lot of positive energy. This movie, I grew up watching this movie. I can solidly say that I grew up watching it. I remember everything about it, uh, just being a magical experience. And it's, uh, even, even better as an adult. I think this is one of the first movies I remember watching it as a kid and, thinking, man, this is like a strange, you know, that bizarre action adventure kind of fun movie that's not necessarily a kid's movie, but it's not like a serious adult movie either. But it has all adults in it. It's not like we even have one character as a kid. It's very much all adult cast, but it's fun at the same time being, uh, you know, kind of semi-violent a little bit, but not overly violent, but passable for kids to watch. I don't think that this is, you know, scarring like me watching Fatal Attraction as a three-year-old. I think this is very much uh, passable for for kids. Yeah, and I know it's it sounds terrible to say, but this was probably my introduction into like martial arts movies as well. Because I do consider this a martial arts film in some respect. I w- it was either this or Karate Kid, but I think Karate Kid 2 came out at the same time as this movie. Yeah, I take that back. Karate Kid was probably my introduction to that. But uh, that was a, a much more subdued movie. This it's one, true. Like, the sort of fun kung fu, like battle-y type movie. Yeah, and and Karate Kid is a wonderful movie. But yeah, this is much more. It has it has so many different elements to it that we'll get further into talking about. It's a real genre blender. This movie, but has a lot of style to it. And uh, we can't help but not talk about John Carpenter. Really happy that we're. Getting another one of his movies in the rotation. Uh, We do uh, recycle directors here on (laughs) Don't Push Pause. And, uh, you know, some of these directors, they make so many good movies. You can't help but uh, pull from uh, several of their works. And I think this is one of John Carpenter's most fun in comedic movies. Uh, He definitely has a lot of horror movies and sci-fi type movies that I appreciate. But I think this is one of his most fun films that he's made. By far, I would say. I I mean, I enjoy all of his films, but this one in particular, this movie is just fun all throughout. 
and has a lot of comedy to it. And John Carpenter is known to do movies outside of the horror genre. And I think that this is one that transcends um, a, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different genres and also shows that he is a very versatile director. Yeah. And we'll talk about the cast, of course, the working relationship between Carpenter and Russell. This, you know, they've done five movies together, which is wild. And we've covered a few of those already <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, how this movie came to be, you know, the script to screen. We'll talk about, uh, the release and the reaction to this movie, how it was unique in Hollywood being a movie that was predominantly cast with uh, Asian Americans. Of course, a movie from the mid-80s. We've got to hit upon the effects. There's some really fun things in this movie. And talk about that, a lot of the set production. Um, overall, just kind of like feel, atmosphere, tone of this movie. is. Am I, am I a really twisted, sick person that I've probably watched this maybe seven or eight times through just in the last two weeks. Not at all. This is a fun movie to rewatch. I don't really get, yeah. I don't get sick of it. And I honestly is goofy as that song is. I don't get sick of hearing the big trouble. Little China song. Big trouble. Little China. Perfect. You know, I know I even texted a friend of mine who has kids and I said, I think big trouble in little China is a movie that you need to show your six and eight year old. <laughs> I'd be curious how that screening went. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah, if you're a listener and if you have kids, let us know if you if you showed Big Trouble in Little China your kids, what the reaction was. Uh, Justin Hayward, who we've had on the podcast several times as a guest, uh, he told me he recently showed his kids Gremlins. Yeah, how'd it go over? He said they were they were rolling on the floor laughing. They just thought it was hysterical. <laughs> and then he told them there was a sequel. And so he said the the morning after... Uh, they watched Gremlins. He said they hadn't even eaten breakfast yet. And his daughter, who's six, was like, are we watching the second Gremlins? And he's like, I mean, tonight we're going to watch it. She was so pumped. Um, he said oh, part God, two was I've... a little, uh, it was almost too outrageous for them, but they just adored the first one. Oh my God, it was too outrageous for him. It's perfect for kids. Yeah, yeah. Really? I mean, they still okay. loved it, but I think they're, you know, the first one just has that magic that's going to grab you. Yeah, magic and intimacy. Yeah, the second one, the second one's fun, but man, is it crazy. <laughs> well, uh, we'll talk about Big Trouble. We'll also talk about our picks of the week. You know, I went through a bunch of different movies I was thinking of. I was going to do a Carpenter movie and I thought, eh, I did that last time we we did Carpenter for the podcast. So I decided to go with a Kurt Russell movie and I went with 1980s. Robert Zemeckis co-written and directed uh, Used Cars. That's a good pick. And I, I have that and um, I think I'm probably going to rewatch that tonight. I'm really glad that you did this one. Yeah, I'll get into it later, but man, the one thing that I just could not get out of my mind the entire time I was watching it, let me know if you think this is the same. I just felt the whole time that this was a, a role, Kurt Russell's role was like tailor-made for John Belushi. Just that sort of like manic, somewhat mean, gruff energy. I think a lot of movies in the early 80s were tailor-made for John Belushi, but he just didn't yeah. do them. <laughs> what was your uh, pick of the week? I went with the Kim Cattrall route and she co-stars in big trouble in little china and i went with 1984's police academy another movie that i grew up with and hadn't watched in many years and was really kind of surprised and how i mean i'll get into it but i'm really glad that i went back and watched police academy yeah you uh you got me on a police academy kick i might have watched the like the next three sequels too right after i watched the first one then i laid out the series 
And I was like, I'm going to start knocking these out. It's been a while since I've seen some of the later films. Completely still worth it. And I know franchises still exist and slapstick silly comedy still exist. But there's just something that's special about Police Academy. I don't. Yeah, I'll get into it later. Still part three is my favorite. Citizens on Patrol is pretty great, too. It is. Yeah. (laughs) Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we get into our first clip from Big Trouble in Little China, Lindsay, can you just give us the brief lowdown, your interpretation of what this movie is about? Oh, you know, I would love to. Big Trouble in Little China is just a mind scrambler, a genre bender, which follows a truck driving blowhard, Jack Burton, and his good buddy, Wang Chi. The two get caught up in a kidnapping when Chi's fiance is mysteriously grabbed by a local gang. But why? In a town where mysticism and legends are real, only a girl with green eyes, Chi's fiance, can break the curse which has been placed upon a 2,000-year-old Chinese sorcerer named Lo Pan. Above the ground and below San Francisco's Chinatown are two heroes and their ragtag group of friends hope to save Chi's fiance before she becomes Lo Pan's sacrifice. I make that sound so much more serious than what the movie is, but I mean, there is like a very serious plot that's happening all throughout it. Heavy mysticism happening there. You know, there's lives at stake. And the I was struck by the trailer for this movie, how serious it makes the movie look with some goofiness thrown in. But this movie is very much a comedy and it's action adventure. Just a fun movie, um, even if it does have a serious plot underneath. Yeah. We'll go to a clip and we'll come back. We'll get into Big Trouble in Little China. Sounds good. Mutual Fidelity Insurers of Sacramento. Yeah, well, there's got to be a listing, honey. I pay them six Gs a year in premiums. China is here, Mr. Burton. Yeah, go ahead. All right. The Chan Xin. Yeah, okay. The Wing Kong. They've been fighting for centuries. What does that mean? Huh? China is here? I don't even know what the hell that means. All I know is this Lopan character comes out of thin air in the middle of a goddamn alley while his buddies are flying around on wires cutting everybody to shreds and he just stands there waiting for me to drive my truck straight through him with light coming out of his mouth? Jack, please. Hello. Oh, yeah. When did this happen? It didn't, Uncle Chu. Not like he says. Yeah, it did, Uncle Chu. Two hours ago. Tall guy, weird clothes. First you see him, then you don't. Yeah, is this just a switchboard? I Lo mean, is there an agent Pong there appeared on, on the street. I can barely hear Wang Chi, why didn't you tell me? I didn't want to alarm you, Uncle. Look, I'm going to tell you about an accident. I don't want to hear act of God, okay? All right, look, what's your name? Mine's Jack Burton. Good afternoon, Mr. Wall. Eddie Lee, meet my dear friend Jack Burton. Eddie's a new major deer at the Blackpool. And a whole lot more. Well, I don't know my policy number. It's in the glove compartment. Just just look under B-U-R-T-O-N, will you please? Jack Burton? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Boy, the guy you always told me about, huh? Give me that again, will you? I was, I was talking. And that was your abandoned truck. Abandoned like hell. Yeah, r- hello. Hello. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of Hollywood directors who... Um, a really well-known, very successful, like Steven Spielberg, who they don't write their screenplays. They're usually directing screenplays that are written by other people. But there's directors like Cronenberg or Jim Jarmusch who write the majority, if not all, of the movies that they direct. And Carpenter's kind of like that director in between. Oftentimes in his lower-budgeted movies, you know, he writes the script or co-writes it with somebody um, and then directs the movie on several of the big-budget 
movies that he's done, studio productions. Uh, he's directed a, you know, a script from someone else's material, which was the case with Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, so this story originally started out as a Western ghost story, to just boil it down simply. And it came from the mind of Gary Goldman and David Weinstein. They had become friends around the late 70s and came out with this script about 81. Now, it was inspired by this movie out of Hong Kong called The Butterfly Murders. But they wanted to take like this idea, kind of out there martial arts movie, remake that in some way, but make it this historical story set in the late 1800s and have a murder mystery involved, but have a Hollywood-style plot and have a white guy as the lead. They also asked themselves, hey, you know, no one's made a Western in a while. Is that genre due for a resurgence? Let's uh, put a little cowboy vibe into the story. So they do. And they start really doing a lot of research and reading on Chinese folklore and dive deep into kung fu movies. Come out with this script about 81. And it takes only about a year to write and another year um, to sell it. And they sell it to Paul Monash, who Paul Monash and Keith Barish end up being two of the producers on what would become Big Trouble in Little China. Originally, the script was called Lotus. And the head of Fox, the president of Fox, uh, Larry Gordon, suggests doing a little bit of a rewrite on it and also changing the name to Big Trouble in Little China. So after the script is renamed, um, they start doing a little bit more polishing on the story. No significant changes are made, but they can't get a director on board. And it just seems like there isn't enough interest. The script has been bought, you know, but it's just the momentum behind it just isn't there. They try to get director Walter Hill interested. He turns it down. So at this point, Larry Gordon of Fox thinks that there needs to be significant changes and really starts lobbying hard for this. The writers are just not into it. They don't want to do it. At that point, they are removed from the project since technically they didn't own it anymore since it was sold to uh, Paul Monash, one of the executive producers. So at that point, screenwriter W.D. Richter is brought in to do kind of not necessarily an overhaul, but to make this thing sellable. And at the time, he had just come off of Buckaroo Banzai, which if you're familiar with that movie is kind of wackadoo and out there. I really like it. I remember that movie growing up and it's completely nuts and very unique. And that's kind of what the same vibe behind Big Trouble in Little China ended up being just something that people didn't really know how to sum up very concisely because there was so much going on. So what Richter did was he took that story and took it out of the 1800s, made it a contemporary story set in San Francisco, and just something that an audience could grab onto. Larry Gordon of Fox loves the new pitch. They start moving forward with the project, have more of a focus. And W.D. Richter also went to film school with John Carpenter. So John Carpenter's name gets thrown into the mix. They ask him if he's on board. This is a non-traditional hero story. Um, and John Carpenter, if you think about his movies, the character of Jack Burton really does follow this archetype of character that uh, John Carpenter has used in films before. So with John Carpenter on board, that's when the ball really starts rolling on this movie. And Carpenter was just coming off of Starman, which had a lot of buzz going forward. It was one of Carpenter's only films that had some Oscar nominations behind it. And he was able to show the studio that he was 
more than just a horror director. You know, he was capable of doing a little bit of drama, capable of doing multi-genre stuff. And, you know, he really liked the script. You know, he thought it was funny. Once uh, the script was adapted to his liking by his film school friend, you know, it was just a matter of getting a lead. And John Carpenter had a great working relationship with Kurt Russell. And so, you know, he contacted Kurt Russell and said, you know, I want you to be the lead in this. Kurt Russell was kind of shaky about it because, you know, I would say he's a box office draw now, you know, if if a movie's Mm -hmm. got Kurt Russell in it, you know, people know about it. But at the time, Kurt Russell had a string of one after another movies that just didn't uh, do much to the box office, including movies that he had worked with, with John Carpenter. So he was a little bit gun shy, but Carpenter convinced him, you know, I'm not really worried about the release. And if this movie is going to be a big hit, I I just want you for the part because, you know, we have a lot of fun working together. And I think it was a great pairing. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but the movie a lot of time is like, you know, Carpenter and Kurt Russell and, and the writers have said, you know, this isn't a movie about the lead guy being the hero or, you know, the main guy, you know, Kurt Russell is is the sidekick in this movie, but he's very much, in my eyes, you know, a big lead character with a lot of good dialogue. You know, he gets a lot of the the jokes in this movie, even though he can be inept and isn't, you know, the person that everybody looks to all the time. The humor, I think, comes out of what uh, Carpenter and, and Kurt Russell brought to the movie. It's definitely a, a tone that Carpenter's had in like several of his other movies where there's violence, there's, there's humor there, there's... Uh, Uh, genre blending which we've talked about a lot on the podcast you know genre blending can really kind of kill a movie and and it seems just about every movie that was a big genre blender in the 80s has a big cult following now but you know there's a there's a sad tale of the studio not knowing how to market something like that because they were like is (laughs) it comedy is it action we don't know and so they just kind of buried the movie many times I just want to sit down and hey I, I just give me a drama I don't want anything else but uh it's movies like these where especially if i just don't know what i want you know we're in such a a culture and world now where everything is at our fingertips so like oh there's just too many things to choose from but you know i've got some movies where they kind of fit any occasion any mood in big trouble in little china's one of those where it's just it's just straight up fun And I think this movie came at a time when a beautiful, beautiful time in the 80s, which is wonderful for me personally, when action adventures were becoming popular. And of course, this is coming off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was massively popular. And if you know me off the mic, Romancing the Stone is like one of my favorite movies. This came at a time when that genre was poppin like when that's what people wanted to see a movie to take them out of reality and put them into something that in some ways is absurd and you know you can't um actually imagine being in but seeing someone else experience it you know it's it's exciting and that's what big trouble in little china is but it also takes that genre and puts this absurdist spin on it and by being a genre blender of yeah action adventure like one of the most beautiful things about this movie is how you steadily go from reality into a complete fantasy and it does it seamlessly and obviously very intentional from John Carpenter's perspective but taking this this genre that was really hot and was what people were wanting to see in the mid 80s but making it this over the top fantasy 
adventure that had this magical element, this uh, faraway land type of thing, but bringing it to home, to bringing it to the U.S., making this um, culture blending film uh, was just something that hadn't been seen before. And honestly, I've, I've, I've tried to think of other movies that are like Big Trouble in Little China as far as everything that it encompasses. And it's really hard. Especially, too, because the tone of this is, like you said, it, it gets kind of wild. You know, it goes into this whole underground universe that's, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, that's like very... Um, mystical and, and very strange and otherworldly. But the beginning of the movie, you have this sort of like crackerjack script where there's like super fast paced dialogue. And there is a lot of information coming at you. One of those movies that I think helps on a rewatch because though the story is, is pretty simple, there is a lot of information that's like unloaded on you about, you know, the whole history of, of the Lopan character and how he came to be and why he has these powers and why he's kidnapped these women. You also have what I consider to be a great, iconic character in Jack Burton. Uh, again, the focus always seems to be shifted on, no, he wasn't supposed to be the main guy, but he is <laughs> yeah. this, like, larger-than-life character. It's this movie filled with this uh, sort of, like, ancient wisdom, Eastern civilization wisdoms, but you have the American guy who's, like, you know, giving these lines of like, this is the motto I live by. And this, you know, he, he's got a code yeah. and it's, it, and it almost, it's funny because it doesn't seem like it would fit his, the goofiness of his character, but it somehow does. And when he's spouting these sort of ways he lives by and the whole, like it's all in the reflexes, which doesn't make a, a ton of sense at times, but <laughs> it, the, he sells everything that he says because he is like this bit, you know, this just sort of legendary character. And um, I know that they shot this to, to add more about the the buildup of Jack Burton, but that's the first thing that they mention is Jack Burton's name before you know we see him driving his truck into San Francisco. Even all the way down to like the Kurt Russell's not, you know, in the '80s you already had these iconic type actors of of roles like Schwarzenegger in The Terminator or Stallone in Rocky or Rambo. Jack Burton is so, he's just so atypical of all that. You know, he's confident, but there's not uh, there's not this sort of like machoism that's going on, which I, which I really appreciate. I think all the way down to, you know, he's not a guy that's going to like wipe the lipstick off of his lips, you know, and other action stars, you know, or action-oriented movies of that time period were just so full of like the macho look and the ripped look and the soldier type quality where they're not, you know, they, they wouldn't, ever dare let you know wink at the audience or let the audience laugh at at one of their predicaments you know it's, it was all very serious and and dark in tone or even uh, in an interview with Kurt Russell someone said uh you know people were calling this the the Chinese Indiana Jones and, and Kurt Russell was like god I I, I hope that we, we become the Chinese Indiana Jones like I hope that the fan base that that loves those movies, you know, he he took that as a, as a compliment because, you know, they were really trying to go for this like different kind of adventure movie, but have there be something that is an adventure and then also to have a lot of uh, kung fu fights in it because that's something that there weren't really, uh, at least in America, not a lot of big special effects laden martial arts films. A lot of that stuff was filmed in China or a different tone, a different quality of movie. And this one uh, was kind of a bold move to mix you know, martial arts movie in with 
all these other genres that they were already, you know, trying to tackle. Yeah, I think the idea of mixing American sensibility in this everyday character, this everyday guy with Chinese mythology was just a brilliant move and something that John Carpenter really tried to stick to the authenticity of not coming across as as cheesy, you know, being um, a white guy director talking about uh, or having predominantly having an all Asian cast um, really sticking true to how all the fight scenes looked and that everybody was very competent and it wasn't just like a posturing type of thing. It was really involved and looked and felt exactly like how it would be, but, you know, set in obviously a a fantasy type world. I have to say the martial arts aspect to this film is nothing short of, of beautiful choreography and also very like it's very exciting too. It adds to the overall pace and speed of the film. In a lot of ways, this is a kung fu movie for American audiences. In some ways, it's bringing it to an American audience with authenticity and all of the supernatural and all of the fight scenes. Everything seems very authentic. It's hard to think of another movie that compares to Big Trouble in Little China. And it struck me that the writing of this movie and the story, uh, just everything seems a lot freer, you know, than a lot of other films. It it feels like, um, it doesn't feel constrained, you know, like the, the, the options are endless and there's just so much that's unexpected that happens in the movie. And that, I mean, that can go straight down to, an unexpected fight scene (laughs) popping up out of nowhere, but it makes sense in the reality of this movie or that we can have so much story packed into a billion lines of dialogue between five characters, but it's all rapid fire pace, but you're with it. Um, It's just um, the, the pacing of this movie between everything that's happening in the world around just um, it, it works together in um i don't know just like comes together so well but it feels like if it if there was one aspect off or if the crew director um just everyone involved didn't have their heads in the game something like this could have fallen off completely well, and I, I like, too, that how self-aware the characters are of these situations. They're very much like once the story's like laid out, Kurt Russell like saying, you know, I'm a reasonable guy, but I've l- witnessed a lot of unreasonable things. And uh, everybody, you know, the, the group of friends are, are very much on board and they're like, well, yeah, this is, you know, kind of crazy, but here's what we have to do. Here's our plan. <laughs> and I do like, too, yeah. that, you know, going back to the, the martial arts that, you know, the Wayne character who's played by Dennis Dunn, who's you know set up is the you know he's the lead guy he's the guy with the smarts he's the guy who can fight i like that the the jack burton character you know they don't make the white guy better at martial arts or no martial arts he's you know he's got his gun he's got his wits about him but he, he can't really do any martial arts so you know when it comes down to like some fight sequences he accidentally knocks himself out for a big part of the fight while everybody's fighting martial arts he is the audience if you aren't you know one of the amazing martial arts fighters in this movie like you know you're the jack burton character and in thinking too about how this movie just is a very inviting film to watch the villains that we see in this whether it is david lopan who's like the you know the the lord of the 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 ultimate bad guy um he does have some soul to him though there's a lot going on in that character but also like his three 
underlings, the the three storms, rain, lightning, and thunder, three dudes that are amazing martial arts fighters that in, encompass these three storms. Even with those characters, they're not too scary. There's a lot of quirkiness to them. Not necessarily like humor. There's no like jokey jokes towards them. They're very serious characters. But they have like, you know, interesting weaponry that yeah. you know, is like abnormal. Yeah. You know, like the spinning blades or like the the claws what is that? That, that shoot you know, out just, like like long back just, scratchers. Yeah, like what is that? It's it's awesome though. It's very cool. And along with having these characters that you've never seen in amongst a reality that is very much a fantasy, you have also real mythology mixed in there. All of this just blends together to feel like somehow you completely buy the universe. I think by making it not completely scary and also adding that fun humor appeal to a very serious story makes it easy for any audience, whether kid or adult, you're just uh, very much sucked into this universe and bringing it back to right at the beginning, like you're sucked into this universe and then you, by the end of the film, you are completely involved in in something that is otherworldly. I give it up to the 80s. You know, so many movies that had these unique set designs where, you know, yes, they're in San Francisco and yes, they go to Chinatown, but then immediately, <laughs> you know, you're like, wait, you forget that they're even in California, you know, like, because <laughs> yeah. the, the set design and everything has its own unique universe. And the 80s really, really catered to like, they're like, how can we make this universe fit you know, the audience is like, okay, you know, I've, I've been to California. This looks like one of the 50 states, but then delve into this wild universe that they've never seen before, but also it doesn't look wildly unbelievable. I love all the, you know, sort of underground cavernous different looks of this, how expansive this under, you know, it's like Lopan's lair. Like how huge is it? I mean, there in all these different parts, there's like monsters down there. There's floating eyeballs that help you know, low pan sea intruders. I mean, it's just wildly, wildly original. And I think I'm even more appreciative of it now when I watch it, because not to, to kind of harp on the fact that like, oh, they, you know, they make some of the best, they made some of the best movies in the eighties. I mean, that's where they're pulling from. They're remaking all these movies, but the first ones that came out in the eighties were so unique. And this movie really just does like a bang up job of that. And I always see something a little bit new that I hadn't seen before because, you know, sets are created and, you know, you only see them in the background for like 20 seconds, but there, there's a lot to look at in this movie. It's pretty amazing what they did. I mean, I know they had a pretty decent budget, but they really pulled off like a really big atmospheric film. Oh my gosh, yes. Everything involved with the production, the special effects, all of this, creating this maze-like underworld and these fantastic fight scenes, which were, come to find out, like, this was before, you know, we were having guys hang on wires, you know, like that we were doing these aerial fights um, like that. This is straight up just using trampolines and, you know, shooting the background in one in one shot and then shooting the actors in another shot and like blending those shots together. This is some serious, beautiful work that's done as far as making this movie really come to life. And just to put it in perspective of when this movie came out, the special effects in this movie came from the Boss Film Corporation, which was the group that put out, you know, Ghostbusters, Fright Night, Poltergeist 2, and then then there's Big Trouble in Little China. So that's the brain power 
that is behind this film, and that's the imagination. And also, think about it, when you've got a string of movies like this that are known for how creative they are and just the impressive special effects work, all of these guys are, I mean, they're all trying to outdo each other. We know that. That's one of the things that made 80s practical special effects so awesome, was that everyone was trying to do better and better and better, and... They were. They were outdoing each other. And what we see in Big Trouble in Little China, I think, is another example of how special effects kept advancing. Maybe there's something that doesn't work for you in in this movie or, or not. But to me, man, I don't know. Justin, how do you feel? I think everything in this movie still looks incredible, whether it's just old age makeup or whether it's that freaky wild man monster i i love it there's certainly things that 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 might look a little bit dated but i think it kind of lends to the style and tone of the movie you know and i i appreciate too like the uh when Lo Pan is the old man in Victor Wong's Egg Shen fight, they don't actually fight. You know, they, they we have this whole sequence where they put on rings and then it's almost like a video game. Like there's this like red and green weird glare and it's like these two warriors fighting. It's like levels and levels of like creativity. And it's a movie that's that's void of like a bunch of explosions and people just getting like gunned down. I think that's one of the great things about martial arts movies and, and choreographed fights like that is, you know, I know it's not easy to do a a big scene where squibs are going off and a bunch of people are getting, you know, their chests blown, blown away. But, but there is something I think a little bit uh, more interesting of like seeing a choreographed fight and, and kind of being able to tell more about what's going on, you know, with each individual person in each shot versus like, you know, gun blast, gunfire going off and an explosion happening. It's not to have a problem with that, but I just think it's, you know, in, in the mid 80s, there was that was a big part of American popular cinema, you know, action cinema. And in this movie, I, I think, you know, goes in a different direction, which it did in, in so many ways, again, is why I think maybe it failed, at, you know, finding an audience in the beginning, but which is why so many people, uh, you know, are so into it now. So how about we uh, go to another clip from Big Trouble in Little China. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast, the release of this film, and Carpenter's contribution to the music as well. Sounds good. Where does this go? Up to his office, Lopan's office. It's cooler up there. From, from there we can... Do you have a gun, I hope? I have a knife. A knife? This guy's 12 feet tall! Seven. Hey, don't worry. I can handle him. I took something. I can see things no one else can see. Why are you dressed like that? I, I, I was getting married. He, he was marrying both of us just because uh, my eyes are green too, I guess. I mean, oh God, is this really happening? So like we said in the beginning, in interviews with Carpenter and the writers, they wanted to make a movie where the normal everyday lead guy is actually the sidekick in the movie. Kurt Russell is the sidekick to Dennis Dunn's Wang Chi, who is kind of the hero of the movie and who does get the girl at the end. And not only was that different for this type of movie, but it was also different because uh, the cast was predominantly Asian. In Hollywood movies, there really weren't uh, lead roles for Asian actors, much less a, you know, a hero role 
which is unfortunate because Dennis Dunn, who's so good in this movie, he's been in other movies, but he really never really got the shot to do like another leading man role like he did in Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, I know. It's something like that seems so unfair because he is really incredible in this movie. And it, one thing that makes this movie so special is having the typical sidekick role, uh, actually that person being the hero of the story. And probably not surprising to some of the other Asian actors in this movie why Dennis Dunn, you know, didn't get another starring role like this in, in Big Trouble in Little China. That being that, you know, many Asian actors still to this day face the same stereotypes that they faced in 86 too. But I think overall, what Big Trouble in Little China did do was try to expand a lot of roles uh, for Asian actors to not just be one dimensional characters, to be more than just a villain, to be more than just something that people have seen for years and years because they don't feel the need to further develop the Asian character. And it's just, I mean, it's something that's just, I mean, it's racist, you know, it's been something that's been in, ingrained for, for forever. And I think that John Carpenter really tried to not have that be a thing in this movie. And I don't think that it was, you know, he set out to say, I'm going to make a movie where we're not gonna, we're not going to have these stereotypes. There are still some things in the movie that are would be classically determined as stereotypes, but those characters are further developed and they're not one dimensional. So I think that that's an important thing to realize about this movie and a character like Dennis Dunn and even like Victor Wong's character of Egg Shen and even James Wong as David Lopan, all of these characters are so developed and so rich. A lot of ways, Victor Wong is probably my favorite character in, in the whole movie, and he's a supporting character. Yeah, and Victor Wong has done, I mean, he's probably, I think, the most familiar face of the secondary characters uh, cast in this movie. And he, I think he's like really carved a niche as like eccentric characters in movies with also not having to put on, which a lot of the interviews of the Asian actors and this said, you know, a lot of roles, if you want to be in Hollywood movies, you either have to play like the Asian subservient role or you have to kind of put on the accent. Um, and Victor Wong kind of did a good job, I think, ahead of a career where, you know, he's he's popped up in a ton of movies and has been able to have like be a comedic actor without having to like kind of sacrifice like just looking like a a stereotype in the movie and James Hong too has done a lot of voice work but god his IMDB is like 436 jobs that he got um, and man he was still with it like uh, in the interview uh, on the Big Trouble Blu-ray I mean, he's like 89 when he did the interview I mean I think he's like 91 or 92 now but he's like with it and like telling all these great stories and like got his start doing stuff I mean during World War II which is just nuts yeah, James Hong, man, that guy's face, I have seen him all throughout um, since the earliest movies that I can remember this. I mean, obviously, this being one of them, but something that he always brings to every role is that he and this is probably stemming out of trying to break the typical Asian role that he's been dealt his entire life, um, but trying to do something from a different angle and trying to make something new. And I think that that's super important. And hearing him talk about this, you know, the guy's been around for a really long time and seeing how 
he approaches every role, like looking at this and then looking back at other work, it is really kind of cool to watch what he brings to everything. And it does make it so defining. And I think Lopan, what he brings to this guy, man, Lopan not only is terrifying. I mean, I think he's pretty scary, but you know that there is a depth of soul behind that character and what he, I mean, what he's able to do with the script is, um, you know, just pretty astonishing to me. And to pit this, you know, big kind of seven foot tall supervillain um, in some ways against Dennis Dunn, who's, I, I always think of him as like the speedy shortstop on the, on the baseball team. He's like right there. He's incredible. But to have this, you know, seven foot tall villain of Lopan facing Dennis Dunn, it is uh, really staggering to see how they are very evenly matched. And while Dennis Dunn is kind of the understated hero, I think, I don't know, I, I love the partnership between he and Kurt Russell. And while Kurt Russell is the marquee name for this, he's on the poster. When you watch this movie again, really take into account what's happening in the story and um, really notice that Dennis Dunn is is the hero and Kurt Russell's the sidekick. I like the way Dennis Dunn plays this too because Kurt Russell is like the audience in this movie. Like we're following, you know, all this madness through Kurt Russell's eyes, but Dennis Dunn's character, you know, Wang is the person who's explaining everything to us. Like he's telling like the scene where ever when they, all the gangs are fighting in the beginning, Wang and Jack Burton are in a truck together. Wang's kind of explaining like who all these people are and why they're doing what they're doing. We as an audience are getting information. We're moving the story along, but we, we, we get that like, he's very familiar. You know, he's, he's dealt with all these people before. He's very, very familiar with the underworld that's going on in Chinatown and also Dennis Dunn, you know, he, he did not know martial arts, so he was able to train like he knew a little bit growing up, but he was able to train and pull off, you know, the moves for a movie that, it, you know, is, like we said, somewhat of a martial arts movie and make it look like a good fight scene, especially I think he's got the best battle sequence where, you know, they're both going up to the air. He throws the sword and catches his opponent midair. And that opponent, Peter Kwong, is uh, he plays Rain, one of the three storms. He's one of the one of the fiercest. I would I don't know. They're all pretty fierce, but that uh, that that battle scene that you're talking about, Justin, the look that Dennis Dunn gives right before he throws the sword up is so good. It's such a just a way of editing the way that John Carpenter saw this scene going. It's so dramatic and so quick and just, I don't know, really nails how strong and confident the character of Wang Chi is. Yeah, and, and Wang Chi just has a positive outlook. I mean, he even all the way up to the end of the movie, he is is one of the aspects of the movie that kind of leaves you feeling good. You know, he does get the girl at the end. When he tells Jack Burton why he, you know, has been waiting to be reunited with his girlfriend, you know, it gets a little sentimental, but that's about as far as like a romance story goes in this movie, which I think is a good thing. It's more about the comedy and the adventure, not so much about the love story, but there is something there and it is, it is believable enough that you do feel good for, for Wang at the end of the movie. And you don't feel bad about the fact that Kurt Russell is, you think that the relationship's going to be Kurt Russell and Kate and, and Kim Cattrall, but at the end, 
uh, that that doesn't happen. And I think that's great. I mean, again, I know I've said it like ten times, but another another sort of like taking what you think is going to happen and kind of like going in the other direction. Well, you know, you need that aspect of the you've got to save the princess, you know, in the story. And that is the Miao Lin character played by Susie Pai, who doesn't have, have any words in this. I don't know if she really needs to because she she serves as the kidnapped fiance of Wang Chi. She's the girl with the green eyes, the one that can break the curse for Lo Pan. She serves her purpose definitely in the story, but it's enough of a love story. That's really all we need for this movie. And the the other aspect, and like you said before, uh, we don't really get that with Kurt Russell and Kim Cattrall. Uh, Kim Cattrall playing Gracie Law. But man, how that uh, how that love story happens with like two kisses, and then how it ends in the end. It is a uh, man talk about leaving you with wanting more, you know. Whew. But I love it. It's a unique ending. Something like that doesn't happen in movies, and no one's really left. Um, devastated or sad i don't know justin do you feel like gracie law is kind of left being like wanting jack a little bit more because he's like yeah i don't know maybe i'll be back in town yeah i think that there was an interest there i mean and it's and they definitely play with that through the movie i mean there's there's clearly an attraction but i think that's part of what makes uh makes you like jack burton because yeah he doesn't he's he's you know he doesn't need anybody you know he like he's like the the guy who probably has like made many a woman unhappy and so he knows not to go down those roads because he knows himself at least that's how I, I i get his character you know he he certainly doesn't seem like one who's gonna stick around for much and, and his friendships are very like surface level and I like that Gracie Law is not exactly, she's not butthurt about the whole thing. She's completely fine. She's confident. She's she's a lawyer that's working towards saving underage girls from prostitution. She's a, she's a strong character in this story. It's not like she needs Jack. She happens to get caught up in this entire mess and is, is someone that needs to be saved. But I, I don't, I think that that's just like part of the, how the story evolves versus who her character is. She's definitely not a a weak character where the only purpose she serves is just as a love interest. And I, I do really appreciate that about Kim Cattrall's character. And if she is not, um, what would I say, enigmatic, I think in this movie, the best thing about the Gracie Law character is Kim Cattrall firing off that dialogue, man. There are so many scenes of dialogue between she and, I mean, at least four or five other characters where it's just rapid-fire dialogue back and forth, back and forth. But I think that she is on top of it. And uh, I noticed something with her performance that I saw in, when we talked about Total Recall before. There's like a part in Total Recall when Sharon Stone does something crazy with her eyes and you see a, a shift in her character Kim, Kim Cattrall does that numerous times in this movie. And it is during moments of, um, I think one of the moments is when Lopan has her and is like trapped her before he's put her under a spell. Um, she does something with crazy with her eyes there too, where you read this emotion in her face and this changing of a feeling from being scared to being empowered and it just happens all throughout the film. Uh, Kim Cattrall's performance is, I think, pretty understated 
in this movie, but man, she does. She's a standout for me. It's sort of an ensemble picture because they are a lot of times all in the same scene together, you know, and they kind of all come together immediately in the beginning to hatch his plan to to get uh, Wang's girlfriend back. There's some good back and forth between the characters. Like, I feel like they uh, they have like a good chemistry amongst each other. Um, cert- certainly the most, I think, with with Dennis Dunn and Kurt Russell, like I feel like their friendship is really charming and endearing. Yeah, they're best friend aspect is pretty cute they're such just a you know unique duo one's like big and kind of muscle bound and the other's like sporty and like fit (laughs) you know and just um how they play off of each other they couldn't be more different from each other but how they play off um together in this movie it's it is yeah endearing is probably the best word yeah and Kurt Russell, who, again, has worked with John Carpenter uh, multiple times prior to Big Trouble, he has all the confidence of what makes most of, I think, uh, Kurt Russell's characters fascinating to me. You know, it's always fun to watch a character that exudes confidence, you know, someone who, uh, even if they don't know the right answer or they're they're walking into trouble um, they don't seem like it's getting the best of them. Jack Burton is kind of that character. I know Kurt Russell said him and John Carpenter said a lot of character, you know, the sort of kind of based off of uh, John Wayne. And I can kind of see that in in some sense. Uh, John Wayne used to carry himself in a very confident way in the way he would speak to somebody, you know, with such authority. But he also always kind of carried this reserved, unemotional aspect about him, like you know, you didn't really feel like anything was getting to him. There was never really a big moment in the scene where, you know, he has like some sort of like self-reflection and is like worried about himself or like worried about his friends and in some sort of uh, mental way, you know, and that's kind of, I feel like the Jack Burton character is, you know, he's, he's pushing forward. He's trying to make the best out of every situation. Not really like looking back. Let's, let's do what we got to do, whatever they're going to bring at us, whatever, if they've got 10 guns, whatever they have, you know, we're going to do our best. And if, and if that doesn't work, <laughs> maybe we'll die. We don't know, but he's, he doesn't get hung up on the little things. To me, he is, I mean, he's like an anti-hero and I mean, I know he's not, quote unquote the lead hero of the story but to me I still think he's the man with the the good quotes and the the guy who's <laughs> going to uh who's going to be the one that's that gets everybody out of the jam if i were stuck in this situation and i had a guy like jack leading me i think i would feel a little bit better honestly to have a guy that had this blind confidence <laughs> like in some way that would make me feel a little safe. I think I, I'd, I'd, I'd feel good. I feel like I would probably be like the Donald Lee character who's playing Eddie Lee. I think that might be me in this story. Even, even with the, the most quiet character of them all, I think with somebody like Jack Burton leading the group and, uh, backed up by your actual muscle, which is Wing Chi. Um, you know, I think I'd feel, I think I'd feel pretty good. Yeah. My, my favorite, performance that Kurt Russell does in this movie and and really my one of my favorite scenes is after Egg Chen you know they're getting ready to do the final battle sequence and Egg gives them the uh the drink that sort of it's like basically drugs them (laughs) to make them feel ready for battle and they're on the elevator and uh there's not really like no one's really saying anything they're just kind of smiling and uh you hear you know Wango man I feel pretty good and uh 
and Kurt Russell's kind of like half smiling. He's like, yeah, I feel kind of invincible. You know, they're all like, <laughs> and they all look just like super high. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, uh, that, that's just such a great scene. And I love the way uh, Kurt Russell just, he's got a, he's got a great smile and he really uses it to his advantage, you know, and, and, in those scenes, like he, he's got that ability to like do pauses and then kind of cut up and, and always makes me laugh. You're probably not going to hear anything negative about Kurt Russell coming from this guy right over here. I love the, I love him in pretty much anything I've ever seen him in. And I don't know, this might be my favorite movie that he's in. Yeah. It's tough for me because I love his, I love his character in the thing. And I, really everything with John Carpenter, I love, uh, Snake yeah. Plissken and Escape from New York, but I do think that he does. This is one of his funnier roles. Um, but man, he's great in so many movies. He just he's an all around uh, natural performer. He just never looks like he's putting any effort into it. He just looks always so at ease when whenever he's on screen. You know, I think the next movie that came after this for him was Overboard, and I kind of feel like that maybe that's where Jack Burton drove his truck to was to that little crappy house in overboard. I think that's actually the sequel was overboard. And that's Jack Burton in that movie. Just to close out real quickly. This is like we said, an ensemble cast, Kate Burton, who, who plays a, another auxiliary character with Donald Lee. She plays Margot. She and Donald Lee play these like supporting characters so well. They serve their purpose and really uh, work well within the group. And I know that I already mentioned Peter Kwong as Rain. Uh, we've got James Pax as Lightning, who is the, the second of the, the Storm Trio. And then probably the biggest name of them all was Carter Wong playing Thunder who has the part that I think everyone remembers, which is the yeah. <laughs> giant exploding, blowing himself up scene um, at the end of the movie. Like he He's uh, not only an actor, but martial arts instructor, Thai boxer. Like The dude is a master of martial arts, and I think at this point had been in countless martial arts movies over the years, um, still considered a master this day. He just really put himself into this role. There's so many bit players, so many supporting characters in this movie that really help enrich everything that uh, makes up Big Trouble in Little China. And with everything that was so exciting about this film and all the players that made it up, it didn't mean that there wasn't, you know, a little bit of concern about who was telling the story uh, behind this film, that it was basically uh, white guys telling a story that was predominantly featured in all Asian cast. And a year before, the film The Year of the Dragon faced um, a backlash when it came out, that it did feature some typical negative stereotypes um, in the film. And the director did say it was bringing up racial issues, but the Asian community felt like you're also further ingraining these negative stereotypes about Asian culture. So Big Trouble in Little China was facing an uphill battle kind of from the get-go. Once it was found out what this movie was about, the title, just kind of everything snowballed. But I think to John Carpenter's credit, he was ready for this and wanted to make sure, as somebody who had been a fan of kung fu movies his whole life, 
and didn't want anything to be misunderstood, certainly didn't want to upset anyone. He wanted to make sure that everything was as authentic as possible in this movie. And yeah, due to the the controversy and, and the way uh, Year of the Dragon was panned by the Asian community, there was some concern about Big Trouble in Little China. And there was a little bit, you know, like you said, a little bit of controversy. But in the end, I, I feel like most people, like audiences felt like, um, and the actors themselves felt like they, you know, they were, they were actually playing uh, positive roles in the movie and also um, felt happy about the fact that, you know, that this was a big budget Hollywood movie and they were getting to play uh, different roles than, than what was normally offered to them. You know, it was, it was uh, different for a movie to come out to have, uh, for a Hollywood movie picture to come out to have like, a, you know, a 90% uh, Asian cast and there was a lot of difficulty in marketing the movie, as with uh, you know most '80s movies that have genre blends, and then you mix in the fact that uh, it's also a martial arts film, and uh, there's only two white faces, and one one of those faces <laughs> is not like a huge star. Kurt Russell was nowhere near the star he was whenever this movie was released. There was really just uh, the marketing department had a hard time figuring out how to market this movie in. It really, uh, when it came out, it didn't do much business. The studio didn't push the movie very hard. Um, it didn't really find an audience until much later when it hit television and, and video. And, you know, a whole huge group of people found the movie. And, you know, it did become a beloved cult classic. And I feel like a lot of people know this movie. This is one This is one where I ask people, like, oh, do you like Big Trouble Little China? And, I feel like nine times out of ten, people either like the movie or they've they've also heard of it and seen it. Um, I don't really feel like it's a lost cult classic. I feel like it's um, it's always been pretty popular. It just wasn't one of those movies that hit at the theatrical box office release. And Kurt Russell would even say that along with his career, rentals like renting movies and VHS was kind of the saving grace of his career and this movie. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something that is so true about a lot of movies that we've talked about on this podcast. This movie wasn't the easiest to market for Fox, but as far as what I learned, their like advertising budget was also kind of cut because there were a lot of other movies that were considered to be bigger that were coming out around the same time. This movie came out, I think it was July 1st, so this is in the middle of summer blockbusters, and you've got aliens opening the same weekend i mean really how can you even face the sequel to alien you know uh, you've got karate kid 2 coming out too and then top that off you've got bigger movies that came out weeks before that and that are coming out afterwards this movie just got buried just got buried in amongst all of them and it had nothing to do with the merit or quality of the film just um, it was this weird snowball effect of not knowing how to market a movie and then just being submerged, you know, under yeah. under bigger budget or just bigger named, more well marketed movies. And one thing revisiting this film as an adult now, I can appreciate the score and the music behind this film, especially knowing more about John Carpenter over the years. 
this might be something that's really calling me out for being super lame, but I hadn't seen the Coupe de Ville's music video to this movie, which featured John Carpenter on bass and vocals, as well as director Nick Castle and also director Tommy Lee Wallace. What a treasure this music video is, and what an incredible song. Yeah, if you haven't seen the music video, I, I, you can find it on YouTube. It's a... Uh... It's worth a look. It's pretty wild. So 80s. So 80s. So amazing. So gutsy of all three of them <laughs> to to make this. And yeah, we're laughing and saying like, yeah, you should really check it out. It's something to behold. But I'm not making fun of it. Like it is it is just very 80s. It's a solid song that's yeah. Big Trouble in Little China. It's a solid 80s jam. But man, does it take some guts to do that when you were the director of a movie to put out the theme song for the movie, as well as being one of the two masterminds behind the entire score of the film. And it's not like it's something that's alien to John Carpenter. He's always been a composer and always been a musician. But doing something like that, God, that music video that tops my list. It's right up there with uh, when the going gets tough. (laughs) And if you're a huge fan of Carpenter, you know, I think most Carpenter fans know that Carpenter composed most of his movies. You know, he did, he created the atmospheric and usually synth driven scores to his movies. Um, but his longtime uh, composing partner, Alan uh, Howarth, was a big part of a lot of the Carpenter scores. And uh, not just, uh, you know, Carpenter's co writer. Uh, a sound designer, um, huge sound designer, uh, did the sound design for the first six Star Trek movies, did the sound design for the Back to the Future movies, uh, as well as, you know, going on to continue doing the Halloween music for the multiple sequels that they did. Um, but uh, he really did help shape a lot of the early, you know, Carpenter, 80s Carpenter scores that we love, you know, that very um, bassy, synthy. 80s tone and and vibe that you know is being replicated heavily now in the last four or five years it's sort of had this resurgence but um around that time not not that many people were doing it and it certainly wasn't uh like the cool thing to do it was more of you know out of uh uh, not having the money to do like a big (laughs) you know symphonic score yeah and i mean really carpenter helped establish a whole music movement synthwave that is something that I, I don't even think people realize that John Carpenter had such a huge hand yeah. in, in in helping create. The dude's kind of a mastermind in in my opinion. We'll come back at the end of the episode for some final thoughts on Big Trouble, but let's move on to our picks of the week. Lindsay, you went with Kim Cattrall in Police Academy. Uh, what can you tell me about that wacky comedy? Well, I hadn't seen any of the Police Academy movies in years, but I'll be damned if it did not hit every great 80s nostalgia box on the checklist. I was also relieved to notice that it's not as cringeworthy as I expected. If anything, it had more heart than I remembered. So the story behind the plot has some truth, and I think that's kind of relevant when it comes to a wacky movie like this. 
Producer and writer Paul Maslansky got the idea when he saw a group of police academy trainees doing crowd control in San Francisco. He was struck by how different they all looked, all shapes, sizes, and not just all white and male either. And noticing their diversity, he went up to the commander in charge and mentioned his observations. The officer's response was something like, yeah, they've installed these new hiring practices for fair employment, and then winked at Ms. Lansky and said, but we can flunk them out after three weeks. And that's how this story was born. What if the cadets, who had all the odds against them, didn't get booted and ended up being kind of the best? In some ways, one could say this movie, you know, while enjoyed by real police and non-police alike, one could say this movie makes a statement through comedy. A point covertly hidden and deeply woven into a massively funny movie with a fair amount of action where the underdogs save the day, but making a point nonetheless, even if it is the comedy that is front and center. It's a lot of unforgettable sight gags, physical humor, and clever dialogue from actors who all have very solid funny bones. You've got to be down for the absurd and slapstick to watch any of this, but that said, there is a story that steadily unfolds as the humor is just unrelenting, and a lot of this is dependent upon the timing and reactions of actors. The accident-prone cadet, the podium blowjobs, the motorcycle dismount of a horse's ass into a literal horse's ass, Donovan Scott's persistent physical comedy, and usually repetitive gags don't do it for me, but the size and strength jokes revolving around ex-footballer Bubba Smith as Hightower just get funnier, really, as the movie goes on. Or even David Graff's Tackleberry, his constant love and fervor for guns and action is somehow not really that threatening, because he doesn't seem like a bad guy. The material is given room to breathe, and it's obvious that the actors had time to work with their scenes. To let the script be funny, I mean, after all, this is basically a camp movie, but set in a police training environment. If the scene's funny, overacting could hurt it. Instead, this group is given a great base for each character's development. Everyone is securely established in the beginning. These are characters that could just be hollow, as they are in a lot of comedies, but not with Police Academy, and I think that's due to director Hugh Wilson allowing and encouraging these actors to throw in their own ideas, to work it through and fully realize their roles, which also means a lot of ad-libbing. Wilson wasn't a director known for doing a ton of takes either, and if they feel secure with themselves and are only growing, then theoretically, it's a recipe for something truly unique. Like, take Marion Ramsey's meek and quiet voice for her character of Cadet Hooks. She was told Hooks was afraid of air terrified of everything. But that voice, that voice was her idea, inspired by a time that she'd met Michael Jackson, and is really the aspect of that character which defines the role. And Leslie Easterbrook brought the tough woman image to Sergeant Callahan versus the sleazy charm of Wayne Newton, which is what had been lined out in the script. G.W. Bailey, he felt like Lieutenant Harris needed a prop, and without that authoritative stick he carries in every scene, he just wouldn't have the same punch. And while so many others changed up their roles too, it's the rewrite of Michael Winslow's Larvell Jones, which is the best. As Cadet Jones, he's the guy who can imitate any given sound, noise, or voice at the drop of a hat. It feels like Michael Winslow's responsible for popularizing beatboxing well before Police Academy, but his voice effects and talents are just astounding in this movie. No one else could do that. Steve Gutenberg is, of course, the lead and charming in that Bugs Bunny sort of way where you love him, but his boyish attributes are made up for by his endearing qualities. And Big Trouble in Little China's Kim Cattrall turns in a strong and subtle performance as Cadet Thompson. And it's also nice that she and Gutenberg's love story is a subplot, which doesn't take over the entire movie. 
you know, come to think of it, actually, all the female leads in this movie are pretty great. I made mention in the beginning about how Police Academy craftily wove diversity into the plot. And while it does fail on some light female objectification, I'm not excusing this to be expected in 90% of 80s movies, where this movie rules is how it deals with race. There are some very overt moments of racism, mostly by one character, but it is immediately put down. And that racist character is repeatedly humiliated and shown to be an idiot. When Cadet Hooks is called something racist and Hightower comes over to stand up for her at the cost of getting kicked out of the academy, it's a moment of bravery I don't really recall seeing a lot of at this time period. And story-wise, it's an important transitional moment sewn into a slapstick comedy. Through little ways like this, Police Academy shows its true heart. And also for 1984, the gay bar scene is not offensive. I mean, at least to me. (laughs) Sure, the two narking racist police cadets are sent there so they don't find the real police cadet party. But the resulting scene is honestly just funny without being anti-gay. Sure, it's a cheap joke, but it could have gotten offensive, and later Police Academies certainly do go there. Police Academy spawned six sequels, and though this was the only one to receive an R rating, it's tame by today's standards, save for your standard unnecessary 80s boob flashes and a little cussing, but no F-bombs. This movie is also internationally popular because of its humor, and it's easy to understand that these cadets are flawed and turn their flaws into strengths. There's no real interpretation needed there. Character reactions, action, and physical humor are all universally transferable. You don't 100% need to get the dialogue. Most of the humor isn't mean-spirited either, and that's what really does it for me. No one gets hurt. The bullies are always punished. Racism isn't put up with. And there's a general sense of equality. It leaves the audience with an inspirational, lighthearted vibe. The underdogs win. They've worked their way into an oppressive establishment and will make the world safe from all the bad guys and bullies. When I'm settling in for a slapstick comedy, that's what I want. Something that's teetering between great humor and almost vulgar, but just skirts by. And when there's something cringeworthy, it's immediately challenged or the villain gets what they deserve in the end. Give me the first Police Academy movie any day. It's a classic 80s comedy which passes contemporary standards. And it's still pretty darn funny and endearing. I think it's wild how the Police Academy movies, like the first one started off as a very hard R kind of rating, and then the rest of them are much tamer and milder, like almost like kid-friendly PG movies. They are, but some of the humor... The humor is just uh, not really the same as it was in the first. I mean, there's a lot. I'd say like 78%. But it does devolve into some some stuff that you're like, oh, man, you didn't do that in the first one. But okay. But no, they're still funny. And I think after rewatching some of them, I think I'd have to say it's like one, four, and three are probably my top three favorite favorite ones. Citizens on Patrol still gets me, man. I really enjoy that one. Three is my favorite, but three is really good. I, I really like one, and and Citizens on Patrol is is really great. All right, it's your turn, Justin. I would love to be reminded of this Kurt Russell classic that is Used Cars. So Used Cars is a movie I saw many many years ago. I think I saw this when I was a kid, and. I uh, was trying to think of movies uh, for pick of the week, and it was a tough one for this week. I don't know why. And I, I knew I wanted to do Kurt Russell, but I wanted to do something that was 
further back and one that I wasn't familiar with. So I chose used cars also because it was the first move, one of the first few movies that Robert Zemeckis wrote and directed prior to uh, hitting it big with Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future trilogy. I also wanted to use cars because there's a little callback to use cars in Big Trouble in Little China when Kurt Russell like is kind of like going undercover, like he dresses like the nerd in the the sports jacket and the glasses and goes into like the brothel to get information. Um, that's his outfit from used cars. <laughs> so it was just like a funny, you know, little throwback that they did for used cars and used cars is an interesting movie because it is kind of seeing the comedic side of Kurt Russell. And it's also kind of seeing the style develop of Robert Zemeckis. And to me, those are the reasons to, um, check out used cars if you haven't seen it. I know I've done this many times on the podcast before, Lindsay, where it sounds like I dislike a movie that I picked for my pick of the week. And this is probably going to be the strongest one of those. And I don't hate this movie. I don't I don't dislike this movie, but this is one of those movies that is forever kind of trapped in that late 70s, early 80s style of sort of mean-spirited, wacky comedy where a lot of times it really works. You know, we have this totally goofy, like comedic 80s plot of these two used car dealerships that are across from one another that are owned by these competing siblings. They're both kind of like scheming used car places, but Kurt Russell works for the more kind-hearted one. The other ones are set up as villainous, even though the guys at the used car place that Kurt Russell works, you know, it opens with him like breaking into an odometer and winding the miles back, you know, and they're like putting (laughs) gum to hold, you know, the fenders on cars. There's a scene where they train this dog to like act like it's been run over so they can make the guilty uh, person who test drove the car buy the car out of guilt that they killed the dog. And so all these kind of like schemes that they use, it's kind of wild though, because this is uh, at at the simplicity of this story, I think it totally functions, but then they throw in all these like crazy subplots throughout the movie of used cars like the owner gets uh sort of murdered and then they sort of like intentionally fake his death and then like his daughter shows up um out of nowhere kurt russell is uh wanting to become a a senator so he's kind of like trying to use all these tools uh, that he learns um you know this lying and scheming to like work his way into being a politician so there is sort of like i think satirizing the political climate of that time but then there's there's just so many things thrown thrown in in this movie so that's why i think it really does feel like that sort of like 70s kind of like wacky comedy where it's like really dark humor but in the in the lens of 2020 like i think time after time Um, I'm noticing a lot of these movies that I liked in the late 70s, early 80s that were like slapstick kind of come off very, very mean spirited. And I said this in the beginning, the whole time I'm watching used cars, I uh, constantly feel like this movie was designed for John Belushi's style of humor. Kurt Russell does a really fine job. I think he's very funny in this movie. Movie, it's it's wild for me again. The number one reason to watch this is like you see how charismatic Kurt Russell is. I mean, this movie is like resting on his shoulders, and there are some uh, very interesting visual bits, um, some interesting comedic bits, but. Another reason to watch is because you just have this like really huge comedic cast pops up like all these bit parts and and it's almost like a who's who of like early's comedy. You know, we see Betty Thomas, we see Dick Miller, we see Al Lewis. 
Joe Flaherty, uh, Michael McKean, the list goes on and on, Garrett Graham. There's also a, uh, it's interesting, there's this bit where they, uh, I don't know that it would make sense if you watched this movie as maybe like a 20-year-old and you had never seen this movie where they kind of like cut into a live news feed and steal airtime by doing these like outlandish commercials. And it's actually a uh, Jimmy Carter's like giving like a presidential statement and they cut in on that, you know, like they cut into a direct uh, feed and just do these like insane car commercials where they're like blowing stuff up. And it almost feels like uh, one of the ideas of this movie was is like, how many cars can we destroy trash in one movie and they're really doing it too. This is, there's no digital effects. They're like, you know, just constantly crushing cars or destroying cars. And uh, there's a lot of humor in it. You know, it's, it's a bit uneven and it's just unbelievably wacky. I mean, it's just almost, it's, it's dialed up to 11 pretty much from the opening credits to, to the end of the movie. But if you can hang with that style, I think you'll find some very, very good comedic bits. And, you know, to me, Big Trouble in Little China is, the quintessential Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon movie. And I think if you butt it up with used cars, you'll have yourself a really, really fine Saturday or Sunday afternoon Kurt Russell double feature. I think this was a great pick. It follows that trend that does not exist anymore of late 70s, early 80s comedies where it was just reckless abandon when it came to comedy. This was a great pick. It was a strange watch. Uh, it was definitely one of the stranger <laughs> rewatches of me watching a movie through adult eyes versus, uh, you know, like yeah. an eight-year-old kid. I think it pairs really well with your pick of the week as well, Police Academy. So, yeah, that's if you if you want to go for a full-blown uh, triple yeah. feature, um, <laughs> you know, just do our picks of the week, uh, used cars and Police Academy, and then close it out with Big Trouble in Little China. Perfect. I think that's a, that's a great all-day movie marathon. It would be a really fun day, yeah. Well, uh, those are our picks of the week, and here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me, because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so structured. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. One thing that's always stuck out to me about Big Trouble in Little China is how much it rains all throughout the movie. It's constantly wet in some way everywhere. And when it's not raining outside, one of the three storms are breaking through ceilings and then it's causing it to rain inside. Below ground, the Big Troubled Bunch are traversing the underworld, swimming through treacherous caverns in order to save the day, almost falling down wells or swimming past brilliantly gross dead bodies. So while watching this movie on a particularly rainy day, I started thinking about my favorite rainy day Billy stories. Duh. Maybe you remember episode 64, Ginger Snaps' Murray moment where Billy got caught in the rain while making his way to the official Bill Murray Day in Toronto. Or maybe with Bill and Rain, you could think of him as Carl Spackler, being forced to caddy for a golfer determined to squeeze in nine holes as a storm's a-brewin', completely soaked and egging the man on to play through the heavy stuff. 
It rains harder and harder, monsoon weather. Carl's over it, but won't forsake his caddying duties. Okay, that's just fictional. There was also a time Billy was caught in Martha's Vineyard, cruising the waters reportedly looking to be having the time of his life while boating in the rain. That sounds like a pretty good one. Navigating the waters in the middle of a storm sounds like a pretty great Murray sighting, no doubt. I'm jealous. But probably my most favorite one I've ever heard goes back to 2012, when the Charleston River Dogs were playing against the Savannah Nats. If you know anything about Billy, you know he loves baseball and has a long history with the sport and partly owns the River Dogs. Now, if you enjoy the sport too, like Billy and me, you're probably no stranger to the anguish that happens whenever confronted with a rain delay. And during this specific game between the River Dogs and the Nats, Billy swooped in for the rain delay save. They've got the baseball field covered with a tarp. Everyone's got to wait this one out. But then the River Dogs director of fun decided to come in for some fourth inning entertainment. Billy heads out to run the bases in the middle of the rain, galloping over air pockets in the tarp, rounding third and stretching out his arms as if he's an airplane, heading straight for home plate. And probably three quarters of the way down the third baseline, he turns the tarp and standing water beneath him into a slip and slide and slides headfirst for home and giving a few good old fashioned couple rolls over the plate and calling himself safe. Pretty sure he didn't even make it over home plate. He shakes off his soaked clothes like any good river dog would do and then heads into the team's dugout, greeted by high fives all around. Fans at Joe Riley Stadium were certainly treated to a mass Murray moment that midsummer day in June. Just another case of Bill making the most out of everything that life throws at you. Actually, it kind of sounds like something that Big Trouble's Jack Burton would do, too. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Just making the most of it. You got to do what you got to do to get by. <laughs> that was a very short and sweet Murray moment. Um, that moment is also available if you uh, do some crafty Google searching. You can find that clip out there. Well, thank you so much for that Murray moment. As always, of course. Did you have any uh, final thoughts on Big Trouble before we wrap this thing up? There's a lot of cute special effects things about Big Trouble, but there was one thing that, man, gave me a really good chuckle. I like the wild man character, like the monster that pops up in this movie. I like that thing a lot. And I never really noticed it before it was pointed out. But the toes, if next time you're watching this movie, look at the toes of that creature. I guess the stuntman that was in in the wild man suit didn't get it through his head that he was supposed to stand on his tiptoes. You know, like you're a wolf and, you know, the heels like are supposed to look like your joint, like your your wolf joint, you know, and he wasn't getting that as many times as he was told, yo, stand on your toes, man. Uh, he just never did it. He never did it at all. So the next time you're watching Big Trouble in Little China, look at the toes on the wild man creature because they're just like flopping around. I've noticed it before, but it didn't really click with me that that was an error of the stuntman or of the costume or anything. It still works. It's such a minor thing, but it was really funny to, uh, to hear that it was so annoying. <laughs> yeah. I had to look for that after you told me about it. It's, I mean, it's, it's so minor, but it's funny, like, looking on it. It's, like, one of those minor errors that's not even an error at all. But if you see it and you notice it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's totally a thing. All right, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, my final thought was actually special effects related to and right. sort of uh, the mishaps that can happen with special effects. And it's a very short one, but I was actually listening to a commentary for 
Evil Dead the other day, and mm-hmm. they were kind of talking about how back in the day, um, the contact lenses that actors would wear for special effects Oof. contact lenses were very yeah. thick and very rough, and they were a little bit better a few years later with Big Trouble, especially since the studio had more money, but they were still the uh, green contact lenses that Susie Pye and Kim Control are supposed to both have green eyes in the movie, and they actually had brown eyes, so they had to have the contact lenses put in and uh both of them were having a very difficult time because you can only leave them in for so long they're not something that you can leave in all day so it was very very difficult for them to like put the contact lenses in let them set and then shoot the scene real quick so they could take them out and you know reset you know it's just the same thing like talking about special effects it's just little things that you never really think about how difficult that would be especially on something that just seems very simple but the green eyes make such a they're such a big part of the movie and it looks to me, I, I think it's a pretty good effect. It looks pretty real. Like, I don't know that I would have thought that they were contact lenses unless I was listening to the behind the scenes. It's such a big part of the movie. And have, having seen Kim Cattrall in so many movies, when I've seen her in subsequent movies and they'll do like a close up or like you see her eyes, I really do flash back to Big Trouble and think, oh, wait, that isn't her eye color. And then it made me think back of my entire life and have I ever met anybody with green (laughs) eyes and I don't believe that I have. I actually, I was at work the other day and my friend came to visit and she was talking to me and I was like, you got green eyes, don't you? Like I was like, so in big trouble, like mind space. It's like, I don't know. Are they? I'm like, yeah, pretty sure. Some nice green eyes you got there. (laughs) I I think I sounded like a low pan freak. I (laughs) must've. Well, I really loved revisiting Big Trouble in Little China. If any of you out there have not seen this movie, man, check it out. So much fun. Endless entertainment. Man, even, like, I feel like I want to rewatch it tonight just because I've had such a good time on this revisit. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next, we are going to get uh, a little bit more serious. We're going from light to dark. And we haven't done too many period pieces on the uh, podcast, but uh, we're going for the 70s period piece slash war drama slash heist film, Dead Presidents. So much going on in this movie. I can't wait to get into that one. Really looking forward to it. Yeah. So that's coming up next. If you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. It helps a lot and help also keep you informed about what episodes are coming up. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. On YouTube especially, uh, please subscribe to our channel. There we have all of our old episodes logged and also any other weird little promos or videos that we do. If you also want to check out older episodes, you can find them archived at our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. There as well, we have our merch store, which we have tons of different items with our logo on them as well as other cool novelties that you can find that are movie related Uh, also if you want to contact us for any reason whatsoever please do at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com and i just wanted to say before we get out of here if you are a really big fan of john carpenter and horror movies for that matter please uh check out our podcast neighbors the carpenter rants their regional podcast here in st louis as well 
and they uh, covered all of Carpenter's movies as well as uh, tons and tons of horror movies and they have a lot of great um, recommendations on their Facebook page like a lot of stuff I haven't seen so it's always cool to check out to see what they're watching because a lot of stuff that they've uh, put out there I've added to my list and checked it out. I totally agree. Um, some movies that they've done that I've not seen before. I loved when they did Let the Right One In. I have seen that, but they're pretty funny and always love what they come out with. And we we didn't plan this. We both uh, accidentally put out The Fly at the same time. We both did a, <laughs> um, yeah. we both did a Fly <laughs> episode, so that was kind of funny. But yeah, they're uh, good people. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you.